Welcome to the Scott Ross Discipleship Podcast. Scott has been discipling men and women for more than 20 years and is passionate about helping you grow into the full measure of the maturity of Christ. Grab your Bible, something to write with, and your favorite warm beverage, and let's listen as Scott takes us deeper in our walk with God. Okay, we are, for some of you, going to be very excited about this. We are going to be wrapping up our survey of the Old Testament today and how the Holy Spirit has been revealed in the Old Testament. And we had gotten through Isaiah the last time we were together. We've seen, you know, this progression of the Holy Spirit revealed as very critical in the creation event and the uh, genesis of life. And the connection between the Ruach, which is the Holy Spirit, and the Ruach, which is the breath of life, and how there's a relationship there. Then as we entered into the historical books, we saw that the Holy Spirit is often used, or He often accompanies someone being anointed, someone being chosen by God, and He validates that chosenness and also empowers uh, the one chosen to do something significant. It started out with military conquests and real practical things like that. Then as we moved into uh, the, the wisdom books, we started to see that the Holy Spirit is uh, actually the essence of wisdom, the genesis of wisdom itself. And, of course, um, we also started to see that the Holy Spirit anoint when, when anointing someone. It's not just for military purposes, but also starts to have spiritual ramifications. Then we moved into the prophetic books last week, and we saw that in an even bigger way. And now we're going to get to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is interesting because there's not a single specific reference to the Holy Spirit in all 52 books of Jeremiah. Um, Jeremiah is almost the anti-spirit book because it is the very explicit word book. And uh, we, when we get to uh, the very beginning of Jeremiah, um, chapter 1, or um, if, just, uh, if I was to contrast um, Jeremiah with Isaiah, which we just saw, y'all might recall that we started out reading from Isaiah that this whole new created order would come under a spirit-empowered descendant of David, the stump of Jesse, and that the spirit empowering this leader would change the entire created order. Um, we read this scripture last week. We didn't read these verses, but these are the ones that immediately follow. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together, and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other, on my entire holy mountain, for the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. Now, this isn't how creation works today. So what, what's going to happen when this spirit-empowered Davidic king shows up is that the entire creation is going to be transformed. And then, as we're going to see in Ezekiel here in a minute, um, there's a new spirit that's promised to God's people, Ezekiel 11:19. I will give them integrity of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh. 
throw off all the transgressions you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why should you die, house of Israel? And then the last one, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So you have Isaiah on this side and Ezekiel on this side, very focused on the Holy Spirit's empowerment. And you're going to have Jeremiah come right in the middle. No references to the Holy Spirit. Instead, it's all about the Word. Um, if you look at uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, it says, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke even though I am their master. The Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will give, forgive their iniquity and never remember their again, um, and never again remember their sin. So there's a day Jeremiah envisions when the very word is going to be inscribed on our hearts. And the entire book of Jeremiah is about the word, the word, the word of the Lord. In fact, the very beginning of Jeremiah, Jeremiah starts to say that this is the word from Jeremiah. And then it starts to transition from his word to God's word. But when we read this, we start to, because we're New Testament Christians and we have hindsight, we can look back. What's he promising in Isaiah and Ezekiel that the Spirit's going to come and put, change our heart of flesh, right? And then Jeremiah says the Word's going to be in us. And as we've already seen from the wisdom literature, what's the source of the Word? The Holy Spirit, exactly. So, even though there's not a direct rep, uh, representation or um, reference to the Holy Spirit in Jeremiah, we, we know that they basically have a correlation. This passage talks about the glory of God and His power in creation. And there's these repeated descriptions of the activity of the Spirit in creation throughout all that we've studied before. And um, we, as we said in the wisdom literature, the Holy Spirit is God's active involvement in creation, his ongoing sustenance of creation. Well, here, what do we read in Jeremiah chapter 10, 12 through 16? He says, He made the earth by his power, established the world by his wisdom, and spread out the heavens by his understanding. Remember, we, had, we talked a lot about the correlation between the concepts of understanding and wisdom and the Holy Spirit in the wisdom books. When he thunders, the waters in the heavens are in turmoil, and he causes the clouds to rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings the winds from his storehouses. Everyone is stupid and ignorant. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his carved image, for his cast images are a lie. There is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work to be mocked. At the time of their punishment, they will be destroyed. Jacob's portion is not like these, because he is the one who formed all things. Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of armies is his name. Now, what's interesting in this passage is that he's raging against idols, right? And there's this contrast where 
the Lord has so much ruach, that's this word right here, that he's got it in storehouses. He just got storehouses and storehouses and storehouses of ruach, of wind, right? But as we saw, wind and breath, that's a, that's a reference also in many places to the Holy Spirit. But the idols, they're worthless because they don't even have their own breath. Where, where Jesus, or where God has breath for days, wind in storehouses, the idols themselves have nothing. They can't even, uh, they, there is no breath in them. So it's a pretty interesting uh, little play on words there that the prophet's giving to show the contrast between the real God and these fake gods. Yes, Allison. Yeah, well, so it what's you know when, when if you recall back before we started doing this Old Testament survey, we said we have to think about how we're going to interpret all these passages. And like when I'm planning these lessons, you know, I'm basically doing a concordance and going, where is Ruach everywhere? And then we have to go through and have to make some intelligent inferences. Is this a meteorological thing? You know, like the winds coming in from the east. Okay, that's not the Holy Spirit. Is this a, um, uh, like a, a, a nat- more natural phenomenon or something that has to do with a human, like the breath of me? Or is this a reference to the Holy Spirit? But when, to answer your question, when they're reading this, they would see Ruach and uh, where is it? Ruach. They would see the same thing. And so it's almost like Shakespeare. When we read Shakespeare in English, we know that there's what's being said, and then there's a layer below that, and then there's a layer below that, right? Because of how clever he is. That's what's happening here when he's writing this down. Does that make sense? So even though Jeremiah doesn't really uh, reference the Holy Spirit, because Jeremiah's whole focus is the word we can see the connection between what we've already learned and what he says. That's they say word. Uh, do, do they, I mean, we, say, we think Jesus is the word. I mean, mm-hmm. that's where I go. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, Jesus is the word, the Father is the word. The... Yeah, so we don't mean the logos like you're thinking word. Okay. We th- what what the Old Testament would have just understood this to be the word of the Lord, the prophetic utterance of the Lord, the message that comes from God, and the ultimate example of that would have been the Torah, and the more pared down that's even the the ultimate ultimate would have been the law, right? And so the law won't have to be on tablets of stone, which is what Moses had to do. In the future, the law is going to be inscribed on our hearts. Right? Okay, so that's Jeremiah. Real quick, but because there's not much there, I just showed you basically the only places in Jeremiah where we can make a connection between pneumatology and the book. Everybody good? Okay, so now we're going to get into Ezekiel, which is exactly the opposite. (laughs) Ezekiel is writing at a very perilous time. He's writing, or he's prophesying after the nation of Israel has been sent into exile in Babylon and everything's been destroyed. They've lost the land that was promised to Abraham. They've lost the covenant promises. Uh, They've seen Jerusalem, which is the impregnable city, raised and it's in rubble. 
Um, they've seen uh, everything that they believe in. The temple, uh, Yahweh's throne, all destroyed, and all hope seems to be lost. That's when Ezekiel is prophesying. The Davidic monarchy, which had been prophesied, would never end, right? We've already seen some of those prophecies. It looks like that's ended because there is no monarch, there is no king, there's nowhere for him to reign. Everything is, is lost. And it's all come to a very, very abrupt end. They had been God's chosen people. Now they're just a bunch of slaves in the worst uh, society or civilization uh, from a you know, moral perspective that had ever existed. And here we have Ezekiel. And, uh, you know, like 586-ish, somewhere around there, B.C. Um, so, you know, uh, I don't know if I have it in here, but Psalm 137.1, you know, it says, By the river Jordan we sat down and wept and remembered Zion. That's what's happening here. They're literally just sitting there and weeping. Because it's all over. I mean, we can't really imagine it. I mean, I mean, just imagine that, you know, one day, I mean, you know, uh, unfortunately, there's been people in our modern era that have experienced this. Um, but, you know, we're rolling along as America. We're impregnable. And then we look up one day, and I don't know, China literally rules us. And we got to go, we got to go to work at the little factory or the little field where they tell us we're going to work every day and our, 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 the wives have been separated from the husbands and the children have been marched off to school, the state school, uh, and here we are. And there's no churches, there's no White House, there's no Pentagon, there's no, you know, all the things that we, all of our little monuments that we set up to ourselves, they're all gone, like, like that. That's when Ezekiel's writing for the nation of Israel. And the crisis that he faces is about Yahweh because Yahweh supposedly, right, is in charge of everything and has chosen them and made all these promises to them. So there's all these questions, you know, is, is Yahweh powerful is, or not? Did he forget us or did he, does he remember? Did he lie to us? Is he being unfair? Is he unjust? There's this crisis of faith that's happening and uh, Ezekiel shows up in, this, in the midst of that. And so his message has a very, very, very striking emphasis on ruach, on spirit. And there have been many scholars who have called uh, him the prophet of the spirit or the spirit prophet because he has so many references. There's over 51 references to the Holy Spirit in the book of Ezekiel. So here's just some of the stuff we're going to see. We're going to see that Ruach is the chariot throne as Yahweh arrives to those who are in exile. He's going to blow in the judgment of God. Ruach enters the prophet himself and sets him on his feet. Ruach is going to convey Ezekiel all over the place through these different visions. Ruach falls on Ezekiel as he receives revelation. Ruach needs renewing in the life of Israel brings new life to dry bones. Ruach is a gift to the despairing, rebellious people who are stuck in exile and will one day be poured out on the entire house of Israel. So, Ezekiel starts off in chapter 1 with this crazy vision. And a lot of people read Ezekiel 1 and they just go, I'm out. <laughs> like, it's too much 
to like, and you just figure, well, there's no shot I'm going to understand this book, and you just close it. And I will just tell you, that's not what you want to do. You want to stay the course, because Ezekiel is a very, very great book to read and study. And once you get past the first vision, it's not that difficult. I mean, there's some difficulty there, but here's what's crazy. If you were to read Ezekiel in the original Hebrew, the scholars have trouble even translating it because... The vision has so overwhelmed him, he can't write. In the Hebrew, it's fragmented sentences. It's all this nonsensical language. The grammar doesn't make sense. Words just, or he's writing, it just stops. And so that's, he, even the prophet has been overwhelmed with the vision he's received. So if you struggle, don't worry, Ezekiel struggled. That's okay. Um, but the opening chapter is dominated by this dramatic vision of the chariot with the living creatures and the wheels and these whirring wings and all this stuff. So it starts out Ezekiel 1, 4 through 12. I looked and there was a whirlwind coming from the north, a huge cloud with fire flashing back and forth and brilliant light all around it. In the center of the fire, there was a gleam like amber. The likeness of four living creatures came from it, and this was their appearance. They looked something like a human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like hooves of a calf, sparkling like the gleam of polished bronze. They had human hands under their wings on their four sides. All four of them had faces and wings. Their wings were touching. The creatures did not turn as they moved. Each one went straight ahead. Their faces looked something like the face of a human, and each of the four had the face of a lion on the right, the face of an ox on the left, and the face of an eagle. This is what their faces were like. Their wings were spread upward. Each had two wings touching that of another, and two wings covering its body. Each creature went straight ahead. Here's the first reference. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went without turning as they moved. So, this is Yahweh's presence. He's coming in on a throne, and the throne is being carried by these creatures on this giant wheeled contraption. And um, he's coming in with, uh, the Spirit is, is controlling wherever these creatures go. Um, it says something similar further down in verse 20. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, the creatures went in the direction the Spirit was moving. The wheels rose alongside them, for the spirit of living creatures was in the wheels. You know, Ezekiel is very cognizant of the fact that he is speaking to people who are amidst a, an idolatrous society. And he's wanting to make sure that no idolatry can even appear. So, you know, we've got these creatures that are unbelievable to try to take in. What am I even looking at here? And he wants to make sure they're not... God, and they're not something to worship because they're simply doing whatever the actual spirit tells them to do. They go where the spirit goes. The deity is, is controlling everything, not these crazy creatures. And I'll just tell you from an interpretive perspective, like the four faces and all that, if you really get into studying it, it's not that hard to understand. Like it would have made way more sense for them because they would have been used to, for instance, the symbols of the, of the oxen and of the eagle and of the lion and of the human. Basically, that represented all these aspects of God's nature that would have been reassuring to the Israelites that all four aspects of the, of the nature were, were represented. I'm not going to get into that right now. Okay. The spirit in the life of the prophet. So, the first thing we're going to see is that Ezekiel basically becomes 
kind of a forerunner to us. And you may recall that in the New Testament, the disciples were confused because they thought Ezekiel you know, was going to be a part of what happened, right? But we're going to see that the Holy Spirit is going to empower Ezekiel, and he's really going to be one of the first people we ever see transformed in the way that we are transformed when we're saved and baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28. So, he sees this thing, this vision, and the appearance of the brilliant light all around was like that of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. This was the appearance of the likeness of the Lord's glory. When I saw it, I fell face down and heard a voice speaking. So he's seen this huge vision, and he goes on his face. Well, immediately following that, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet, and I will speak with you. As soon as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and I listened to the one who was speaking to me. So the Ruach up to this point has been external. It's been responsible. He's been responsible for bringing this thing with these creatures and these wheels wherever it wants to go. But now suddenly the Ruach is not going to be external to Ezekiel, it's literally going to become a part of his lived experience from this point moving forward. It's going to lift him up onto his feet, and it's going to empower him. And we're going to see 11 instances in Ezekiel of the Ruach directly impacting him, the prophet Ezekiel. So, when we skip forward to Ezekiel 3, for instance, we're going to start to see these examples of the Holy Spirit moving Ezekiel around. By the way, do we have any questions or thoughts about this so far? Okay. So Ezekiel 3, 12, the Spirit then lifted me up, and I heard a loud rumbling sound behind me, bless the, Lord of the, uh, bless the glory of the Lord in His place, with the sound of the living creature's wings brushing against each other and the sound of the wheels beside them, a loud rumbling sound. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away. I left in bitterness and in an angry spirit, and the Lord's hand was on me powerfully. It's going to take him to Jerusalem, which, remember, they think Jerusalem is done with. This is a big problem. Jerusalem is dead. Well, the Holy Spirit's going to take Ezekiel back to the holy city. He stretched out what appeared to be a hand and took me by the hair of my head. Then the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and carried me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the inner gate that faces north, where the offensive statue that provokes jealousy was located. In Ezekiel 11.1, similar situation, going to Jerusalem, the Spirit then lifted me up and brought me to the eastern gate of the Lord's house, which faces east, and at the gate's entrance were 25 men. Among them I saw Jazaniah, son of Azur, and Pelatiah, son of Benani, leaders of the people. So, the Holy Spirit's moving Ezekiel around, showing him stuff. It's going to take him back to the exiles who are in Babylon. Ezekiel 11:24 through 25, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to Chaldea and to the exiles in a vision from the Spirit of God. After the vision I had seen and had left me, I spoke to the exiles about all the things the Lord had shown me. It's going to take him to a valley where there's these dry bones. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by his Spirit and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And it's going to take him to the inner court of a new temple. 
that doesn't exist yet. Then the Spirit lifted me and brought me to the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Okay, so we see the Holy Spirit impacting the prophet very personally, very directly, moving him all over the place. Anybody got any questions about this? Oh, yes? Is this like in some type of like other dimension, or is this like a physical thing happening? Yeah, he's not physically being moved. That's a great question. It's all in his vision. But he feels... He, 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 his experience seems to him like he's getting moved around, like he's actually there. Oh, so with the 25 men that he saw, was that, prob- could that have, that would have been like from past, right? Because the temple at that point was not there. Oh, so the temple even before the last sentence that you said was even one of future. Yes. It wasn't something from the No, 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 no. He, he's taken to Jerusalem and there's, there's basically like these evil people who are where the temple used to be. And they've got stuff going on. Does that make sense? Do you think those people were there when he was seeing that? Or was it a different time? Well, uh, we don't really know. But there's, I mean, if you get into the, the, that whole, there's a whole explanation of what they're doing and how that plays a role into what God's going to do in, in, in the message that he wants the Israelites to get. Yes. Thanks for listening. We pray this has been edifying. If you've enjoyed the show, please give us a shout out on your favorite social media platform. Scott's username on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is Scott Ross Online. That's Scott Ross Online, all one word. Also, please remember to go to scottrossonline.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, and discuss what you've learned with others. Until next time, continue to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. God bless you.